if I couldn't get my hand on my hands on candy, I used to actually just like eat sugar out of the container. You know, that was my thing. I would just like take it by the spoonful and eat it. And that actually was a behavior that followed me into adulthood. <laughs> if I couldn't get my hands on sugar, if I didn't have my, my drug, you know, I would um, just take a spoon and get into the sugar and, and eat it because I just needed that relief, you know, that it brought me. And so as I got older, you know, I my first escape besides sugar was also reading. You know, I had I was an avid reader. I had a book. I would take it with me everywhere. And it was my first form of escape. Like, I remember I love the feeling of like my body being somewhere and my mind being somewhere else. It was like my my way of a geographic when I couldn't actually get anywhere as a little kid, you know. So I um, I would read a lot. And I was also somebody that had a lot of, you know, character quirks like I. I would um, not talk to the other kids at school. I remember sitting at the bench, you know, reading my book, and I had this particular memory of being uh, sitting on a bench reading a book during nutrition, and the other kids were playing handball. And I remember looking at them and being angry with them that they didn't invite me to play with them, you know? (laughs) And the funny thing is, like, I'm the one with the book in front of my face, like, keeping you out, and then I'm mad at you because you didn't invite me to be a part of, you know, or I didn't feel a part of. And that's another character trait that followed me all my life. You know, I always blamed other people for how I was feeling. You know, if I was um, upset in a relationship, it was your fault, you know. And that's another thing. Like, I always felt this, this feeling like I always expected more from my relationships than I gave. You know, I expected more from you, and I wanted you to expect less from me is really, like, how I behaved, you know. And... I I just didn't know how to do it. I'm somebody that was definitely maladjusted to life. I was incapable of forming relationships, you know, until I came into the room. So as I got older, I did discover um, that, you know, so I started gaining weight. Um, My mother, my parents divorced, but my mother had a boyfriend that would bring, um, we're allowed to talk about food here, right? So he would bring ice cream, um, Baskin-Robbins mint chip ice cream, (laughs) every time he came on a date with my mom, and he would bring a gallon. And so I remember sitting in front of the television set and eating that entire gallon every time. And he would come maybe two or three times a week. So I started putting on weight, like, very quickly. <laughs> and I also discovered that I liked, you know, like, bakery goods and donuts. And so I, my, my journey, you know, my, my horizon expanded as far as food was concerned. And so I started putting on weight pretty quickly. And by the time I was 12 or 13, I was overweight. And that was not okay with my mother. So I remember being taken to a, a doctor for diet pills. And I was given amphetamines at age, like, 13, or maybe 12. And so I loved it. I loved how they made me feel. (laughs) I was able to, like, I was number one in my, like, gym class, you know. I was, like, way ahead of the other kids. And I I lost a lot of weight very quickly. And then I started getting attention from boys. and, And then I also discovered alcohol, which is a part of my story. You know, so I'm also in the other program. And that took precedence over my eating for a while. Like, my weight... I was able to maintain my weight with, like, speed and drinking, and the food kind of took, like, a back burner until it didn't, you know. As my drinking progressed and my, um, my life started to go downwards, it wasn't until, like, towards the end of my drinking, I started eating again. And so by the end of my kind of drinking career and eating career, I was, like, I had gained 150 pounds, and now I was well over 200 and. 70 pounds at that time and uh, I remember having a but there's part of my story that's the you know the dieting part I'll go back to that really quickly so when I had discovered the diet pills I would like use them for a while and then the doctors would stop giving them to me so then I would gain all the weight back and then they would give them to me again and I would lose all the weight 
And then I started finding that I could find multiple doctors as I got older, you know, so that wasn't an issue. But my weight swing would always swing like 50 pounds back and forth. And I remember having a boyfriend that looked at me one time and he says, you know, you're like twice the size as when I met you. <laughs> like, what is going on here, you know? Cause I, and then cause the weight swings started getting bigger and bigger. Like, initially it was like 25 pounds and then it was 50 pounds and then it was 100 pounds, like back and forth. And at one time I was a model. I had moved to uh, France, to Paris, when I was 18. And I joined this agency and... Um, you know, I, I'm the type of person that I would go for a fitting. I remember I had booked a job for a very exclusive designer. We were going to Egypt for the photo shoots. I was very excited. I did the first fitting. I came back to do the final fitting, and the clothes didn't fit me. I had gained, like, 20 pounds, you know, and I, I lost the job. They fired me, and they took somebody else. And so my modeling agency actually, um, they wanted me to be 118 pounds, and I am like five, I was 5'10 at the time. I think I'm like 5'9 and a half now. And I couldn't get under like 125. That was like my body's like limit. No matter what I did, I would exercise for six hours. I wouldn't eat. My body just wouldn't get below that. Maybe I could get there for a couple of days. So they moved me into their plus size division. They had just opened that up. And I was actually very successful in that. At the time, I think I weighed 140 pounds. And I was a plus size model. And I was very successful. I worked a lot. I made a lot of money. I got to see a lot of Europe, you know, I traveled around, and I did that for about five years. And I hated every minute of it because I wanted to be a regular-sized model, you know. And I had actually lied to my family and friends. They never knew that I was a plus-size model. They thought I was, you know, a regular regular model. And, um, you know, I came home, and my drinking had been progressing, so things were getting worse and worse. And I had to hit a bottom there before I was able to look at my food. So I got sober, and I got sober back in 2009. And I saw a lot of my classmates, people that got sober around the same time that I did, their lives seemed like they were taking off, you know. At three years sober, they were, like, doing great. And I seemed to be getting worse and worse. And my eating was getting more and more out of control. And I got to this place where, you know, if I didn't have a commitment or something to do, all I did was stay in my home and turn on the TV and eat. And I remember thinking, like, as long as I have my food and the television, that's all I need in life. Like, my life got really, really small. And I started to feel so out of control with my eating. I was binging. You know, the binges also progressed. You know, I would binge usually like on the weekends. And then I was binging a couple times a week and the weekends. And then I was binging every night, you know. And I was so uncomfortable. I gave myself something called a hiatal hernia. I don't know if you know that. But it's the blockage in your, in, in your esophagus. And it gives you really terrible acid reflux. So I was binging and then like throwing up. And it was just a terrible experience. And... Um, I hit a bottom there, you know. I remember telling my sponsor in AA that because I felt so out of control, I would I would wake up in the morning and I would have wrappers everywhere and I wouldn't fit into my clothes and I would call in sick to work. I heard somebody saying, call in fat to work. And that's, <laughs> that's what I would do, you know, because I just was so, like, so feeling so terrible from the night before, you know. And I remember having this experience where everybody was going to a, it was the summertime, everybody was going to a pool party. And there's no way that I would actually, like, get into a bathing suit. But I couldn't even imagine myself getting into shorts and a T-shirt, you know. So I didn't go. And I remember, like, being really upset that I couldn't go. I was so upset. I went to the grocery store and I bought a half a sheet cake. I came home and I was eating the entire cake. And I remember crying while I was eating the cake. And I just thought, like, I can't believe that I'm so upset about how large I am that I'm eating a cake. Like, <laughs> it just it didn't, it didn't make sense to me, you know. And, and that's when I talked to my AA sponsor about it. 
And she said, I'm really glad that you told me about this because we've been working together for over three years and you've never once mentioned your weight or your food. And she said, and that concerns me. And I felt so out of control that I thought I might drink again is why I told her about it. You know, so she uh, sentenced me to OA. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I did not want to come at first. I was, uh, I was very against it. And I, I came to Serenity Sunday. That was my first meeting. And somebody took me to that meeting. Somebody in my group actually had lost 100 pounds, and I saw him doing really well, and I, I asked him what he was doing, and I had had a huge binge the night before, and I just felt I was in the perfect place, you know, for OA. So I felt demoralized, and I, was, I didn't know how I could do it one more day. And I actually got to this dark place where I thought maybe I wanted to take my life. I just was like, I, I can't live like this anymore. And I, I talked to him about this a little bit, and he, his name was David, and he took me to Serenity Sunday. And that morning, I heard my first sponsor speaking, and she talked about um, she talked about alcoholic foods, and it was a new concept for me because I had visited OA a few times over the years. You know, I'd come here and there, and I didn't really I, it didn't click for me. But I heard her talking about having alcoholic foods, and I identified with that. I was like, oh, and I realized like some foods can be like alcohol to me, you know. And and we talked about it, so I asked her to sponsor me. And uh, she didn't say yes right away. You know, she had me do some work first. And was I willing to go to any lengths? And what did that look like? And I read her a food history. And I really got to see the pattern of my eating and my food behaviors, you know. And I, um, I got to see what my alcoholic foods were. So my abstinence today is I refrain from sugar and white flour. And my abstinence has changed over the years. I've had, a, I've had different abstinences where I've had like 30 things on my abstinence. <laughs> And that was not sustainable for me. So I, that's my basic abstinence. And then there's other foods that are red light foods that I just do not eat. Um, so we started working a program together. And I lost 100 pounds in like a year. And I was feeling so great. <laughs> I was doing a lot of service. I started sponsoring people. I was um, speaking a lot. I was um, going to a lot of meetings. And I started to take responsibility for my abstinence. I started to think that maybe I was the one keeping myself abstinent, you know, and I started edging God out of the equation, and I started taking my will back, like, a little bit at a time. And initially, it was very small things, like my sponsor had, you know, I would send my food to my sponsor the day before, so I would commit my food in a 10th step that I sent her every night. And then if I changed my food, I was supposed to text it to her. And so I started taking my will back by doing small things like oh, instead of having chicken, I'm going to have fish. That's a protein. It's not a big deal. Well, shortly after that, I started having like sugar-free chocolate, sugar-free ice cream, and then I started binging on those things. And so I lost my abstinence. And, uh, you know, getting my abstinence back was a very long struggle for me. It took me, so 2012, 13, it took me three years to get my abstinence back. And it was a very challenging for me. There were times where I wanted to quit and to leave away, and I didn't. And I think that's the one thing that saved me is I, I just kept coming back. I did not leave Overeaters Anonymous. I, I did get a new sponsor, and we started working a program together, and I've been able to, um, little by little, you know, just one day at a time, change my behaviors and my thinking about food, my relationship with food. You know, today my abstinence is... Um, not as strict as it has been before, but it's also um, more honest. You know, I, I tell my sponsor what I'm eating. What happened before is that I started lying to my sponsor. 
And I started feeling like she would judge me. And that's the craziest thing. But I've had quantities tell me that, you know, like, I can't tell you what I'm eating because I feel like you're going to judge me. We're compulsive eaters. Like, there's nothing that anybody could tell me that would <laughs> shock me. I've done it all, probably. You know, I've eaten out of the trash. I've, I've done everything that you can imagine with food. And uh, so I have a sponsor today that I can be 100% honest with, you know. And uh, that means a lot to me. We're working the steps together. And what's different for me this time is, you know, I... I'm more aware of my character defects. I'm more aware of my need for God in my life. You know, I can't be abstinent. I need God to be abstinent. When I would wake up before I came to OA, I'll tell you a little bit about what my morning was like. So I would wake up, and I couldn't get out of bed unless I had ate a whole bag of Reese's peanut butter cups. They were always on the like bedside table. Then I would kind of like slug out of bed to my freezer or refrigerator where I would eat like six cupcakes. And then I would get a family-sized sofa, like lasagna, and put that in the oven. And that would be my breakfast, you know. And then I would go on from there to, like, all the binges at night when I came home. But I was probably eating 50,000 calories a day. I mean, it was insane. So when I got abstinent, I lost, just by changing, I was still eating a good amount of food. But by changing what I was eating, I lost the weight really quickly. And so that brings me to today. <laughs> so now, I'm, you know, it's several years later. I'm over 50 years old. My body type has changed. You know, I can't eat today in abstinence what I had eaten then. And that has been kind of the, like, final frontier for me. It's like, am I willing to eat smaller portions? Am I willing to eat less food? It's not about just not eating the sugar and the flour anymore. It's like, what am I willing to do? And I have to be honest and say, for a long time, thank you, for a long time, I was not willing to do that. I was not willing to exercise more. I hate exercise. I have to be honest about that. It's something I do now. Like, I have a committed two days a week of exercise, and I'm working on another couple of days, you know, to add to that. But, you know, it's, it's been a very slow, like, progress for me. And I have also had to reduce what I'm eating. You know, I... My body does not respond well to carbs anymore. <laughs> it seems like if I look at a grain of rice, I gain weight. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and that's been something I've been battling with. Like my my disease mind tells me, like, well, you used to eat that and you know weigh like 70 pounds less because I gained that quite a bit of weight. I had been over 100 pounds less, you know, and now I'm like 45 pounds. So, you know, the weight started coming on incrementally, and I was not willing to make a change to stop that. So what I have, the experience that I have to share today is, you know, it's very easy in, even in program to be dishonest with yourself, you know. I was not honest about what I was eating. And I remember, like, I would go to this restaurant and I would have chicken with rice. And it looked like just like a cup of rice, which was my portion at the time. Now it's much less. It's like half a cup. But, you know, so I would, it looked like a cup with chicken on top. And so my sponsor said, well, why don't you just measure that, you know, see how much it is. And so finally one day I measured it, and it was two cups of rice. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, my portions. I am not able to judge portion sizes on my own. I do need to weigh and measure them, especially anything like a rice or a cereal or anything like that, you know. And so that's where I've gotten today, you know. I'm, for today, I'm willing. And many times, like, I have to pray for the willingness to be willing. Like, I want to want to be willing, and sometimes I'm just not, you know. And so that has been the biggest battle. And they talk about getting in the ring with your disease and negotiating. For me, like, I know I can justify and negotiate. I can justify just about anything that I want to do. So that's why I need a God in my life and a sponsor to tell me, you know. And my sponsor said, you think you can eat whatever you want and not pay the price, you know. <laughs> and that's not true. 
That is not true. Like, I, I pay the price. And so for today, the way I stay connected to my higher power and, and program is that I need to, I wake up in the morning, and, you know, I, my, my program has ebbed and flowed as far as what I do. And I know that when I'm doing more, I feel better, you know. And so what more for me looks like, I get up in the morning and I pray. Sometimes I have to pray the second I open my eyes because I have one of those brains that tells me everything terrible that's going to happen to me today, you know. And it's like, well, maybe this will happen, maybe that will happen. And so I just have that, like, crazy active brain that, like, wakes me up in the morning with problems. So sometimes I need to do step one, two, and three right away when I wake up. It's like, you know, in the shorthand, it's like, I can't, God can, let him, one, two, and three, you know. And then I, I get onto my knees and I pray, and I ask for guidance, and I also ask, you know, to be able to make healthy food choices and to stay abstinent for today. And then I do my readers. I have, like, three different readers that I usually read in the morning, and then I try to do some writing, like at least 10, 15 minutes of writing. And then I take sponsee calls, um, and now I've added walking into the morning <laughs> routine. So now I walk also. And uh, for me, that, that works. You know, the more I'm of service and thinking about someone else, the less I'm thinking about me and what I'm going to have for dinner. You know, one of my big challenges is that I, I often see food as a reward. So when I've had a really stressful day, my diseased brain tells me, like, I need something to help me, like, take the edge off. You know, I need a, a reward. And so I have to be really careful in the nighttime. You know, that's when I need to be at meetings. I need to make outreach calls. Sometimes, you know, there was, I was going to this Mexican restaurant after work sometimes and picking something up. And so now I text, you know, fellows, like, I'm not going to Cinco de Mayo today <laughs> after work, you know. And I, I travel with friends that are normies and they eat things, you know. And sometimes I will take a picture of it and I'll send it to my sponsor and I'll say, this is not my food. Like, I need to. <laughs> I need to be, I need to be reminded, like, this is, I'm not a normal eater because my disease still has that hope that somehow, some way, it'll change, it'll be different, you know, like, I've learned enough, you know, I've got it to sing now, and I just want to be able to eat like a normal person, and that idea had to be smashed. I am not a normal eater, I know that I never will be a normal eater, and I have peace around that today, you know, in the past I used to feel like a victim. And I would say, like, well, I can't have this and I can't have that. And my sponsor corrected me. She's like, no, it's a choice. You don't have to be here if you don't want to be here. You know, you can eat X, Y, or Z. And um, I realized, like, yeah, I want to be abstinent. I want to be at Overeaters Anonymous. And I'm choosing for today not to have those alcoholic foods. And um, that's a, a blessing for me, you know. I don't feel, I don't eat the way I ate before. I don't feel the way I felt before. I used to have such a horrible self-image. Thank you. I remember walking past windows and stores and catching a glimpse of myself and hating that person. I would just say terrible things about myself to myself. And I don't live like that today. I'm much kinder towards myself. And in, as a result of that, I'm kinder to you. I'm kinder to others, you know, less judgmental. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. This is a time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Thank you. Does anyone? Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how your relationships with people Family or, or friends? Definitely. Uh, how have my relationships changed? 
You know, it's really interesting because I have a lot of complicated relationships before I came into program. <laughs> the most complicated was with my mother. You know, um, when I first came into program, my mother and I were estranged. We were not even speaking, you know, and um, it's interesting because I thought the problem was them, you know. <laughs> but the interesting thing is once I began to change and to recover, it seemed like everybody around, else around me seemed to get better also, you know. And, uh, <laughs> The inventory process is an amazing thing, you know. I, I did the inventory on my mother. I was able to make amends to her. And, you know, I actually held off on that for a little while because I didn't do it. You know, when we create our I, – I did my fourth and fifth step with my sponsor. I did my character defects. And, and then when I got to the amends, I made my list. And I wanted to make amends to my mother first, you know, because we were not really speaking. And my sponsor said, you know, I think you may be wanting to make this amends for the wrong reason because I wanted something from her. You know, I wanted to repair the relationship. I wanted something. She's like, let's put this on the shelf for a while and do some other amends. So I, I did other amends first. But what happened for me is I got to um, do work around my mother with different inventories. And, you know, my big belief as a little kid through now is that my mother didn't love me. That was my belief. And... She was not a very, like, affectionate person. She didn't really hug me. You know, there were a lot of things that, that were not okay with the relationship. And what I came to after doing a lot of inventory about it is that it wasn't that my mother doesn't love me. She didn't know how to love me. It was unfair of me to ask certain things from her because she didn't have the skills or the background or the ability to do the things that I thought I needed her to do. So... Being able to kind of meet her where she is and love her as she is instead of who I wanted her to be or expected her to be was tremendous for me. It brought so much relief, you know, because I was loving her for the person she is today. And when I finally was able to make amends to her, it was such an amazing experience, you know. And she apologized. She made amends to me also. And she apologized for a lot of the things that I had resentments about. And she just, she, she told me, like, how important... I was to her in her life, you know, and that I was the only constant. And it just, it, it really brought us together, and I'm so grateful that we have that opportunity. And as far as friendships, you know, they've also changed. I've been able to show up for friends now that I'm abstinent. You know, I actually missed a wedding when I was out there because I didn't want to look fat in a dress, you know. I was so self-centered and selfish. I would not show up for other people if it was not convenient for me. And today we learn how to do it a different way. You know, we see that and we show up and we're of service to others. And that has, has strengthened friendships. And it's also allowed new friends to come into my life as well, which I'm grateful for. Thank you. Yeah, yeah um, we covered your mom. So here's my question. Yeah. Having a father whose history was quite unusual, um, can you share your relationship with men? Okay, that's a good question. What is my relationship with men like? I actually became very close to my father. He's passed away now, but I was very close to him uh, as I was growing up. And we, we came together, I think, when I was about 18 or 19, our relationship was able to, to grow again. And um, my relationship with men has been challenging. <laughs> um, I'm somebody who doesn't trust very easily, so that's been an issue where I just had a lot of walls up and I wouldn't let people in. And the thing about that is, you know, it's a, it's a self-defense mechanism, right? Like, I'm putting a wall up to protect myself. 
And I'm always the type of person that wanted to know what was coming my way so I could be ready to deal with it, right? And that's not possible with life because lifey things happen, life on life terms. <laughs> so you can't see everything that's coming your way. And it's always a surprise, like somebody came from the left field that I wasn't expecting. And, you know, so my challenge is to learn to trust. And the first relationship I had was with my sponsor. That's the first person that I, human being that I trusted. And once I was able to do that, I began to trust people in fellowship, you know, in program, and trust my friends, and trust my family members, and trust human beings. Because, you know, I used to take things so personally. When people did things that I didn't understand or they hurt me, I thought they were doing it to me. And now I really am able to see that they're just doing what they do. <laughs> it's about them. It's not about me, you know. And that helps me have more, um, it gives me the ability to stand on my own because I also was a very like I have a lot of faulty dependency if you were in my life I like clung to you and I depended on you for everything you know and uh, today I stand on my own two feet I don't I'm not dependent on you for my validation I used to depend on a lot of other people to either make me feel good to provide for me some way you know to um, tell me that I'm okay and it's a big job like nobody can do that job nobody can you know because my ego is never satisfied right it's never enough so I've learned in programs to stand on my own two feet with my higher power. And that has helped me in relationships with, with the opposite sex, with, you know, friends, with family, is to not be reliant. Because I'm always going to be disappointed if I'm leaning on somebody else, you know, for whatever I think I need. That's helpful. Yeah. Thanks. Um, having spent a lot of your life looking at the fantasy side mm -hmm. of things, so what is it in program that helps you when that invariably doesn't come true? Yeah, I, my, how does it, how does program help me not live in fantasy? I live in a total fantasy world that was very uh, seductive to me, and I definitely preferred to put my head in the sand. I think also, you know, when we put our head in the sand or brush things under the rug, it feels like a form of control. Like, I think I've got control over something because I can't see it, right? <laughs> but the thing is that it's still there, and it's festering, and it's getting worse, and it's like... You know, it's like walking through maybe a valley in the dark at nighttime, and then I kind of like, you know, the sun comes up, and I see like, oh my gosh, I'm in a ditch. That's kind of how I felt when I was doing the step work. I realized like, where did I take myself in my life? You know, I felt like I was in a total ditch. But the good news is that we can, you know, we, we have a way out now, you know, through programming to my higher power. So I still have a tendency to have that magical thinking, like it's just going to miraculously be okay. And whenever I feel that way, I run it by my sponsor. You know, my sponsor is very helpful because I feel that I have one hand in my sponsor's hand and one hand in God's. So I don't do things alone anymore. If I am making big life decisions, I do run it by my sponsor first. You know, so I'm not the one in charge, you know, because I, I was very self-sufficient and I like to be the one in charge and running my own life. And me running my own life, I ran it into a ditch. <laughs> so I know that that doesn't work for me. So I run it by other people. Um, I saw you first. Yeah. You, you mentioned that the first person you trusted was your sponsor. Yes. How did you, how did you choose a sponsor? And then how did you come to trust that sponsor? And then sponsors after that? Sure. The question was how do I choose a sponsor and how do I come to trust them? Well, being somebody that doesn't trust easily, it was a long process for me, you know. <laughs> when I was new to the steps, I remember looking at them and thinking, like, there's no way I'm going to read a fifth step to somebody. Like, it's, it's too much that I'm ashamed of, you know, that I don't want to. I thought there were things that I was going to take to my grave that I planned to never tell another person. 
And so I remember when I was new in program, I uh, actually called a therapist. Because I had read in the big book, you could tell that you could give your fifth step away to somebody else. And she had experience with programs. So I asked her, I said, well, when I get to the fifth step, can I read that to you, you know, instead of my sponsor? And she's like, sure, you can do that. But where are you right now? And I said, I'm on step one. And she's like, well, <laughs> she's like, why don't you give it a little time and see how it goes, you know. And, you know, doing step one, two, and three, by the time I got to step four and five, I was ready. Like, I had gained that trust with her, you know. Um, and I knew that I wanted to stay sober, and then later I wanted to stay abstinent. And it's like I knew that I had to do certain things if I wanted to stay here. And I also, you know, I resisted that for a long time. And I got into a lot of pain. And I felt like I could leave program if I don't really just, like, do what everybody else does here in the program. So I was definitely a resistant person. I didn't trust. I didn't want to do the work. Um, it took me getting into a lot of pain where I thought I was going to go out of program, you know, for me to actually buckle down and do it. And today I trust my sponsors. I have two sponsors. I trust them with my life today, you know. And I chose them. I remember asking somebody to help me choose a sponsor because I didn't know. And they said, why don't you pray about it? And so I prayed about it, and then my sponsor appeared the very next day, you know. <laughs> so that was what happened for me. Yes, Thank you, Andrew. That was a really great share. Um, you talked about um, the tendency to want to reward yourself at emotional times. You know? Yes. What exactly do you do today when a reward is... <laughs> Thank you for the question. Uh, what do I do when food seems like a good reward? Well, you know, I still have that brain. So my brain often tells me that food is the solution to whatever I'm feeling because I don't want to feel my feelings. You know, that's the, that's the gist of it. It's like I don't want to feel what I'm feeling right now. So I'm going to be the doctor and I'm going to change my feelings. Like, you know, whenever there's a problem, like my first thought is like, this is not okay. I need to do something about that. Like that's my first thought. So I'm in self-will, right? So I need to go to God first. You know, I have to surrender. Like, I'm not the one that can fix this. God can fix it. So I try to turn it over to God. But, you know, my, my brain at the end of the day will always say, like, food is a, a good reward. I deserve this. I had a hard day. And so my sponsor asked me to come up with five things that I could do instead of food as a reward. You know, so I have certain things that I do. Um, you know, like I can take a bath. I can light a candle. I can do something with my dog that I enjoy. I have a couple of things like on the internet that I like to do that, you know, I, I um, like, it's funny because I never was a person, I was never very like, I didn't laugh a lot before a program, I didn't even like comedians, and now I love like comedy, you know, now that I'm absent, and so sometimes I'll watch like comedians on the internet, like YouTube videos, I do things to make myself feel good, you know, for, without food, and for me without spending money, because that can be a problem too, so I'm not shopping online. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So you said that when you, uh, you got sober you saw these people were like three years and you never had like this joy for life, I guess. Have you experienced that then? Yes. So have I experienced joy for life? Yes, I have now. Uh, you know, it was not immediate for me. I never had a pink cloud. It's been more of like an incremental recovery where I feel... I was somebody that was depressed every day. I felt miserable every day. And what happened for me is, like, eventually, like, I would notice there was, like, one day where I didn't feel, like, horrible. And then maybe there was another day. And pretty soon, like, I started to feel a little better. But I never had the pink cloud. And I, I know today that, like, my spiritual fitness is definitely dependent on what I do. I have to take a lot of actions to feel okay in the day. 
and I used to resent that, but I'm so grateful that we have that to do, you know. Um, so the more I'm of service, the more I work on step work, the more I get out of self, the better I feel, you know. So I, I noticed for me, like, I never had hobbies, you know, because all I did was eat or drink. Um, I was never, <laughs> I was never curious about life. I was never curious about you. And um, I actually had a boss one time, like, I was talking about an employee and I didn't know their name. And so she said, well, you've worked with this person for five years and you don't know their name. <laughs> like, I was just very, like, in my own world, my own bubble. And today I'm curious about life. I want to know about other people. I want to know how you're doing, you know. I want to explore. And for me, I have this sense of adventure about life that I didn't have before. So I feel like today I'm living where I was, whereas before I was just kind of existing. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, uh, thank you for your share. Uh, since you've done recovery and you've done your important best steps, have you done one on yourself? And if so, have, you know, how do you reconcile with some of the regrets or resentments you have of your own actions? Well, you know, in my, thank you for the question, have I done a fourth and fifth step myself? I think it's all about me, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was for me really like step six and seven where I got to see myself and the way I do things. You know, in the fourth step, I got to see patterns and the way I responded to life and the way I harmed others, you know, by, by what I did. And my, because my perception to life can be really off sometimes, you know, and my, Reaction can be really out of proportion to what's actually going on. So today, you know, I have a, I have a more of a pause, you know, before I react. And um, in six and seven, I really got to see my defects of character and how, you know, I got to make a list of like, you know, all the things that bothered me about what I was doing. And then I got to see like what they do for me and what they do to me. And you know, because we do things because they work, right? I don't take actions unless they're giving me something, even if it seems like it's something negative. You know, maybe it was something negative, but it was something that kept me from actually dreaming about something I wanted to do. You know, for me, I believe like certain actions allowed me to keep my old beliefs. And now in program, we get to smash them and we get to have, you know, for me, like living in a small world, like with no hopes and no dreams, it felt safe because it was known, like I understood it, I knew it, but having the world in front of me open was very intimidating, you know? So I think a lot of times I kept myself really small because it was comfortable. And so getting out of my comfort zone is definitely something that has helped, you know, I, I make challenges, I do things. I walk through things, fears now, instead of running from them. I was a big runner, like I would quit, I would run, I like, if it was too hard, I was out of there, you know? And through program, I've learned how to do little steps at a time, you know? It's, I was always very black and white, it had to be all or nothing. And so for me, what I'm learning is, you know, just one step, one foot in front of the other, a little bit at a time, and it's transformed my life, you know? Like all of these small actions that we take that seem very insignificant at the time have transformed me. I'm a completely different person today than I was, you know, before program. And, you know, <laughs> I still have challenges. I'll share something that's kind of funny. Like, I, um, I, one of my big hurdles is patience. I don't have a lot of patience. I want what I want, and I want it now, you know. And it can be very simple things. And, like, for example, my sponsor today is a hairdresser. <laughs> and I, um, you know, like, I have access to hairdressers. But I wanted my hair cut, like, right now. So I decided I was going to give myself some lip layers. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but I gave myself like almost a mullet to like haircut. <laughs> because I didn't have patience. 
I couldn't wait to get to my appointment that was like a week away. I decided I'm going to do it now, you know. So I still have that tendency, and, you know, I pay the price for it on occasion, but it's less often, you know, and I, I have a way of living today that works for me. Thank you.